and uh, make sure you see him. If you don't know who he is, we'll, we'll point him out to you, but uh, really proud of what he's done uh, over the years, okay? Hey, all right, thank you for being here this morning, really glad to have you, and we are now into part four of six of a series we're calling Abolished. Thank you to Kevin for taking last Sunday. Um, Kevin, I think we were all hoping you would break out in song. There was a song that was carried a theme through last week called Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, and we may yet call on you to pull that one off. Uh, Kevin, who would like to hear that at some point? Yeah, okay. All right. So that might, that might be coming. It might be coming. But let me leverage that and swing from that song to another song that you all know very well, a song that... Um, Every American will know, and that is a song written by Francis Scott Key in 1814. You know what I'm talking about. Francis Scott Key looked out in his spyglass, this is evidently how the story goes, and he saw uh, on, over Fort McHenry uh, in Baltimore the American flag still flying after a fierce battle with the British. And so he wrote a poem, which was then later turned into song. He intended it evidently to be a song, and it finishes with the the lines, the star-spangled banner yet waves o'er the land of the, and the home of the, or braves yell if you're a Pequot Valley. Okay, that's the way that works. But, or the land of the free and the home of the brave. And this was so important to Francis Scott Key. The idea of freedom has become synonymous with being American. In fact, let me put it this way for you, that freedom is as American as apple pie and as deeply rooted as the blood our forefathers spilled to secure it. The idea of freedom in America is profoundly deep. We have freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of expression. Those freedoms drive and support our Bill of Rights, which give us inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In fact, if you infringe on someone else's freedom, then you have a real problem, right? It is so deeply woven into the American fabric that it is part of our national song and our national pride that swells up, if that is how you react to it or not, whatever, but that's part of how we are wired as Americans. And yet, and yet, we willingly submit ourselves to abide by laws that other people make and we don't always agree with. Isn't that ironic? A land which touts freedom as a deep value in our national conscience. We also recognize that we are, maybe ironically, also a nation of law. Right? Was it not a major issue in our last presidential election? Who would get elected? Why? Because of the Supreme Court justice nominations that were hanging in the balance. Why does that matter if we don't care about being a nation of law? We are people, people deeply concerned about law and our legal system protects and maintains our freedoms, right? So think about this, the irony of this for a minute. We deeply value freedom, and yet we also deeply value the law, right? Like, I do this all the time, and I think you do too. Does anybody here agree with the speed limit 35 along Route 30 right here? I'm not going to ask if anybody submits to it, okay? Does that, so to my point, we need the law, and I'm willing to submit to that, kind of, But I didn't make it, and I don't really agree with it. Now, I understand where it comes from. We now, in the little town that I live in, Gap, we now have, I think, four traffic lights. There are, like, five people who live in Gap, and there's four traffic lights for all of us. I don't agree with that, but I respond to that. I don't roll through the red light. I don't. I don't. 
There's five. Five. One per capita in gap. One per capita in gap. I don't agree with it, but it's there, and I have to submit down. Now, here's the question. Here's the strange reality of America. We have a deep hold on freedom, but we also have a deep value on justice and legality. It's a strange mix. The question is this. Why is that? Why is it that we both deeply value freedom and the law at the same time because both seem to be contradictory to each other? How can you have a nation deeply wound into law and also deeply wired up by freedom? And here's what I think. Here's the why. We know that we will win more than we lose if we submit to an authority outside ourselves designed for our good. Why do I submit to the 35 speed limit mostly? Why do I stop at the stoplights in Gap? If I don't, our friendly state police will just kind of pull me over and remind me with a small little fine that, hey, just a reminder, here is what the law is, you dummy. Don't go that fast around here. Like, I'm going to get that reminder. I don't want that reminder from him or her. I just want to be able to drive. And so I know that I would rather go 55, but I can't. So I'm going to submit myself to an authority outside of myself designed for our good because it's not that I want, if if there are no speed limit, you might decide I'm in a hurry, I could go 95. And all of a sudden, we're going to have mass chaos if there is no law. And so why is it that we submit ourselves to law that we don't agree with all the time, that we didn't choose, but we do it even though we value freedom? The answer is, I believe, that we know that we'll win more than we lose if we're willing to submit to an authority outside of ourselves designed for our good. Think about this in your personal life for a minute. Any of you in school right now are interested in any hobbies? Music, art, athletics. Why do you have a coach who makes you run? Why do you have a teacher or facilitator who makes you write? Because they're against you? No, because they're for your good, and you willingly submit yourself to that, to their instruction, so that you can win more than you lose. If you actually want to get better at your sport, you want to get better in your hobby, you want to get better in singing, you're going to submit under that, right? That's just going to be the way it will work. When the coach, the teacher, the director is for my good, I'm willing to submit under that, right? That's just the way it will work. And generally, I get a win out of that. Now, here's what happens the opposite way, too. Here's when we lose. You ever look back on life with any regrets? You ever look back and say, I wish I would have done this differently? Remember those college years or those high school years for you or earlier in the last job that you had? You look back and you say, "Ah, I wish, I wish I would have. Isn't it true that someone told you what you should have done? And you just chose not to do it. Isn't that true? Like when you think about your regrets, the things that you wish you don't have to remember, the things that maybe shaped you, isn't it true that it wasn't like, man, I had no idea that would be a dumb choice? Isn't it true that you look back on the shame and regret you have, and you already knew what was the right thing to do, you just didn't want to submit to it? It's true for me. And it's most likely true for you. And that is what I call a loss. That is losing, not winning. And we want to win more than we want to lose. And I'm telling you, that's why we know that we need to be a nation of law while we yet are a nation of freedom. Because we want to, in our personal lives and in our national existence, win more than we lose. Here's what I think is the reality, that God has wired us this way 
to be people who want to express our freedoms, but no, we know, we know, we know that we need authority outside of ourselves to submit to so that we can win more than we lose. And I think God has given us a gift to help us with that. I want to take you to a passage of Scripture that deals with that very issue this morning in the book of Romans. Romans, if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, no problem. There's a Bible in the pew around you. That Bible is our gift to you. It's that red book uh, right in there. Romans is the uh, sixth book in what we call the New Testament, about two-thirds of the way into your Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. We're hanging out in Romans 6. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love you to take that Bible with you. But Paul, the Apostle Paul, the guy who followed um, or helped uh, initiate the local, the early church movement, he is writing to a church in Rome. And he is, uh, he's writing to them in what I said before is probably the most theologically robust letter that has ever been written in the New Testament. And he's uh, writing a passage that can be kind of difficult to process, but let's get into that, if you will. Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 15. And, and Paul begins similarly to how he began the chapter that uh, Pastor Kevin covered last week. He says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? And then he says, by no means. Now, if you haven't been with us regularly, uh, you should know that I'm kind of like stop and go traffic in the text. We're going to go in, stop, I'm going to make a few comments, and then we're going to dive right back in again. Because the reason I do that is I want you to know that the things that I say are an attempt to get truth out of the biblical text, not just out of my brain. All right? I want you to see and then evaluate for yourself, is this here and is this true, or is this just something going on here? So it's coming from the text of Scripture, Romans 6.15. So Paul writes, What then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Now here's what he's saying to the Christians in Rome at the time. He's saying, listen, you were used to the Old Testament law. You were used to a certain number of restrictions. You had to eat a certain way, dress a certain way, worship a certain way. Now with Jesus, all that has changed. And so what should we do? If all of a sudden the law of the land changes, can I drive whatever speed I want to on the highway? If that law is gone, if Jesus comes and sets aside the Old Testament law, and no longer do I have to um, follow Jewish custom to follow Jesus, what do I do? The question is, what do I do? I don't, I'm no longer under that obligation as a follower of Christ, so what do I do? Am I just free to do whatever I want to, to drive however fast I want to, to decide what I want to do with those traffic lights, what then shall I do? Shall I go on sinning because there is no law, is the question. So, here's where he goes. He goes into verse 16 to try to explain it. He says, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, you need to know this about this context that Paul is writing in. He's dealing with people who are used to selling themselves into slavery. Now, that may sound really ancient and somewhat archaic to us, but we do the same thing. We just don't call it slavery. 
when I was in college, I needed to make more money to pay for it. And so I sold myself into slavery to work a second job and then a third job at the same time. I needed it. I was in need, and so I began to work in the mornings for a painter and in the afternoon and evening at the restaurant, and sometimes at another restaurant after I left that second shift there at the middle restaurant. Like, that's just the way it worked. So I, quote-unquote, sold myself into slavery. That's the language that Paul would use. In other words, people, when in financial need, would go to work for someone as their slave for a set number of years. And so Paul's just saying, listen, when you do that, all of a sudden, you're under their authority. That just makes sense. You just can't decide to go on family vacation when your boss says, no, you need to work this weekend. You can't continue to hang out with your friends in the same way. If your schedule says, show up at work. And if you don't, then you don't have a job anymore, right? Like, it's just simple stuff. He says, so when you sell yourself, he said, you offer yourself as a slave to, to obey them as slaves. You are slaves to the one whom you obey. And then look what he says at the end of the verse. Whether you are slaves to sin which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, he really only lays out two options to obey. He says there's two places to go to work. You can either go to work as a slave to sin. You can go to work for sin, or you can go to work to obedience. And what's inferred in that is obedience to God. And so he's setting up two things and saying you can either work for sin or work for God. That's the basic reality of what he's setting up. Now, if we're honest, if we are able to process this in the moments that we have right here, you and I might say, wait a minute, I object. I'd like to suggest a middle ground. Like, who wants to say, number one, who wants to say, yep, I'm a slave to sin? I mean, who wants to do that? Maybe the psychologically troubled, but overall, right, like overall, most people are like, no, I don't really want to be in that category. At the same time, for some of us, the idea of being a slave to righteousness and obedience feels so oppressive, if we're honest. Like, who wants to do that? Where's the nightlife in that? Right? Why can't I just hit the middle road and just be a slave to myself? Do what I want without hurting other people. And that can be like my north star. Like, I, I can be like my north... I, mean, I can just... Why can't I do that? Can that category exist? To which I would say, um, yes. Kind of. You can try that. Here's, here's my take. Yes. You can live a life in which you're oriented toward, I'm going to do what I think is best as long as I don't hurt other people. You can do that. But I would like to propose to you that there will come a time when life will become too complicated. The weight of life will become too heavy. The decisions of life will become too complex. The burden will be too great for you to know what to do. And it's in those moments where you will make decisions that you think are going to be good, and later in life they will turn into regret and shame that you already own for times when you did that before. And so I think Paul is saying, you're going to go to work for somebody. It's either going to be slave to sin or slave to God. We may not use that harsh a language, but essentially that's the point. You're either going to work for yourself, for what you need, for your interests, or you're going to work for obedience. Now, let's keep fleshing that out. Now, Paul goes on to kind of praise these people in verse 17. He says, But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become 
slaves to righteousness. Now, he's saying this kind of quickly. He's summarizing the point. He said, you used to be a slave to sin, now you're a slave to righteousness. Like, well done, good job, you're doing the right thing. It's almost as if now in the room, the Romans who were to receive this letter are sitting there like, what just happened? What are you saying? I'm kind of confused, Paul. What's happening? And so Paul essentially says the same thing again in the next couple of verses, but he nuances it a little bit in ways that are very, very, very helpful to me and I hope will be very helpful to you because he explains this even further into verse 19. He says, I put this in human terms because you're weak in your natural selves. Okay, thanks for that, Paul. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. He said, verse 20, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. And he's just setting up, explaining how things used to be. Like, when you used to not care about what you did, you were slaves to sin and righteousness, and you weren't under the control of righteousness. Like, when, when you used to act this way in your marriage before you came to faith, let's say, or before you cared about living in a way that honored God, you used to be short with your spouse, just the way it used to be. You were free from, quote-unquote, the control of righteousness. It didn't bother you. Your conscience wasn't bothered that way. You used to go to work in this way, and it didn't bother you. You used to kind of live for your advantage. It didn't bother you because your conscience wasn't pricked by the controls of righteousness. It just wasn't bothered. You didn't care. Right? It just wasn't a deal. And then he goes on to say, in verse 21, and he bottom lines it for them. And if, you, you, if you're tracking with anything, please track on verse 21 here. He asks the question that is the bottom line question. And he says this, what benefit or what advantage, what benefit or what fruit, depending on your translation, what benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. This is the bottom line for Paul. Like, in the way that we used to live, in this way of sin, this way of living, like, what benefit did it bring to you? How did it help you? Like, remember the night? Remember, and then he's going on to say, the things that you're now ashamed of, like, the things I'm now, I, the things I am now ashamed of, speaking to you now about me personally, the things I am now ashamed of, I can say almost every one of them in the moment, I was like, this seems like a good idea. Right? This is probably a good next step. Yep. They'll think I'm cool if I. I will probably get more cred if I. My reputation might be helped if I. I should probably leave this job because. We should probably move there. Yeah, we should buy this because. Like All the things I look back on with regret or with shame in the moment, I thought were pretty good decisions. Anybody with me? Because if I didn't think they were good decisions, I wouldn't have made them. Because we never make bad decisions, right? Until we look back and we're like, man, what was wrong with me? Why didn't I see it? And so here's what Paul is saying to you. Listen, when you you are tempted, when you are tempted and your conscience is pricked to say, ah, I shouldn't, but I think I'm going to. Here's what he's saying. That moment, you are about to lose. Guaranteed. You're going to lose. 
It will just be a matter of time, and you will look back on that decision with regret. So don't lose. The temptation is not a temptation to win and to serve others. It's this temptation of sin to step into a self-centered life. And that is my story. That may be yours too. And this is a gift from Paul because he just bottom lines. He says, listen, you want benefit out of your life. You want to bear fruit. I do. You just ask me, what benefit was it? What benefit was that night 10 years ago? What benefit was that decision in your marriage? What benefit was it the way you handled that employee or employer? What benefit was it when you entered into that gossip that seemed right at the time because you were so angry? What benefit was it to hang on to that grievance so long that burned you out inside? What benefit now did that provide to you? And if we're honest, we would look back and say, man, I've gone through some losses. And here's the gift that Paul says. Anytime that we are tempted to step into things that our conscience and that God through His Spirit says, no, 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 don't go there. It's just a warning sign. Here's the exit ramp for that. Lose, go right. It will be a loss. He goes on to say in verse 22, But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves to God, he contrasts it here right away, the benefit or the fruit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. The benefit or the fruit that you will reap from following God's commands will actually lead to a a holy life. Now, I don't know anyone who wakes up in the morning, rolls over, hits the alarm, or however you do that, and is like, holiness today. Now, we don't verbalize it that way. But when you take it in context, contrast it with what he's saying before. Contrast shame with pride. Proper pride. Honor. Like, I can look back now. If I step into the things of God as a slave to Him, and I go to work for Him, like, I can look back on a life and be proud of what I've done. I can look back without shame and regret. How can we do that? Only if we submit ourselves to an authority outside of ourselves that is for our good. That is the benefit of being a slave to God. Is the freedom to actually live the way that you actually want to live. Winning by following not your way, but God's way. This is what Paul says. Here's the benefit. A life of holiness or sanctification, some translations say. The idea behind all of that is at the end of the day, you can look back on your life and I can look back on mine without the regret to say, I followed what God wanted. And he finishes his imagery in a very beautiful way. It is a very, very popular verse that many people know, verse 23 of Romans chapter 6. He says, at the end of the day, when you go to work, And you get a paycheck for the time that you put in. You get your wages. And he says in verse 23, for the wages of working for sin, the paycheck you're going to get is death. Death of a relationship. (laughs) These are your regrets. Just play them out quickly in your mind. That relationship used to be there. That's gone. The honor that maybe you had in that part of your life, that's gone. But it results in death every time. Every time. Every time. Every time there is a death that happens. The wages of the paycheck you get for going to work in that way, results in death. But the gift, see what he says, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So let me go back to this that I said at the beginning. 
We know that we will win more than we lose if we submit to an authority outside ourselves designed for our good, right? I just know that's true. And let me just say this. Jesus Christ came for your good. Jesus Christ came for your good. Your good in this life and in the life to come. He came, as John 10.10 says, that we may have life abundant now, but also life eternal in the future. That Jesus Christ came for this. And so what do I do? Let me frame it up this way for you as we wrap things up this morning. What does it mean, right? What does it mean, then, to go to work for God, to submit myself in that way? What does that mean? There was a Pharisee who asked Jesus a question. Several people asked Jesus several questions. And one of the questions I asked him was, all right, Jesus, tell us the greatest commandment. Great question. Because the Pharisees, if you've been in church, you may know this, they turned the Ten Commandments into 613 commandments to try to help people know how to obey God. Because they knew if you follow the law, you'll win more than you lose. We want you to win, so let me help you. We give you 613 commands. So they asked him, out of all these, what's the greatest commandment? To which he actually answered, I'm not going to give you one answer, I'm going to give you two. And they're going to be so synonymous that you're not going to be able to distinguish them. Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. I'm not even going to answer your question with one, but two. These twin pillars of Jesus' ethic guide the Jesus follower. These twin pillars of the answer to the greatest commandment guide the way that Jesus followers think about everything in their life. And so when I go to work and when I try to love my wife and my kids and think about a future and try to serve the church and the community, whatever you are doing, the twin ethic has got to guide all the way through. How am I loving God and loving others in the middle of all that I'm doing? For example, in the financial world for the Christian, for the Christ follower, there is a struggle with the biblical... and idea of generosity compared to the world that you and I live in in which accumulation is honored. Notice this rather ironic thing about finances in our world. In our world, accumulation is honored while you're living, but generosity is honored when you're dead. Ever think about that? We, I believe that we will be hosting a funeral this week right here, I think on Thursday or Friday. Not from anyone, not from you, I hope. Hope not, Okay. That was kind of morbid right in that moment, all right? <laughs> but an outside, someone from the outside just contacted me this morning, so if you don't know about it, sorry, we just heard that, all right? But we will likely be hosting a funeral this week here at the church. And so at this, at this woman's funeral, you think they're going to start talking about how big her house was, or how new her car was, or how many clothes she had, or newest technology? I mean, really? And yet in life, as we live, we pursue the accumulation. But in death, we honor the generosity. Isn't that right? Like, we don't talk about the accumulation. We don't talk about the vacations at a funeral. How inappropriate, because that doesn't measure the weight of life. And yet here's the tension, a beautiful picture of the tension of living, going to work for myself to accumulate, and yet God's call on you and me to say, be generous. And what a gift it would be if you and I, just even in this world alone of finances, could line up our living so that it was appropriate to our dying. 
And what a gift it is of God to give us this value of generosity to say, listen, live this way so that when you come to the end of your life, you won't end up with regret and shame because you missed what was most important. What does it mean in each of the facets of my life, not just financially, but in my marriage, in my working, in my employment, in my employer role, to love and serve, love God, love others, over and over. Forget the 613 commandments. How can I love God and love others in the middle of what I do and go to work for God in a way that at the end of life you will be proud, not of yourself, but of the work that God has done. It's almost like the battle of 1812, which resulted in our national anthem, is the battle for your heart and your mind in this life. And I want, at the end of the day, someone to look through their spyglass over to Fort McHenry of my life and say, the flag of following Jesus Christ is still flying at the end of my days. That my life was leaned into his teaching, his ethic, his morality. So that when the smoke clears, the flag is still there. Love God. Love others. Serve them and go to work for the things of God. That is a life where you will win both here and in the future. Submitting ourselves to Jesus Christ who came for your good and for mine. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning and the chance to be in the scriptures and see again some things that we need reminded of. I pray, I pray that you would give us courage as men and women, young men and young women of every stage of life, that you would give us courage to make the decisions that we need on a daily basis to fight through and go to work for the things of God. And to go to work for holiness in that sense. To go to work for a life that is given over in service to others. That is given over in love for you. That is given over for love for Jesus Christ. Father, that kind of life is going to have to require a tremendous amount of bravery, of courage to step into things that people around us may not see as valuable. I pray that you would give us a steadfast vision and courage to do what we know we need to do. And Father, we thank you, we thank you, we thank you. That for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, that we can be called children of God. We thank you that that is our identity, that we can serve a father who loves his children so thoroughly and so deeply and so sacrificially. Help us. Help us to remember that as we walk day in and day out to follow hard after our Savior, Jesus Christ. We love you. We thank you for the time we can share. In Jesus' name we pray.